Today we continue in the book of Romans, but as we mentioned, today is also Pentecost. This is the church's birthday. This is 50 days, Pentecost, 50 days after the resurrection. So this is 10 days after Jesus' ascension, 50 after his resurrection. And I like to take the time every year to do a Pentecost message and talk about the matters of the Holy Spirit and spiritual gifts and that kind of thing. But God has sovereignly ordained this year that as we continue through the book of Romans, we landed on one of those passages that totally fits within what we would normally talk about on this day. So here's a classic example of when people say things like, if you teach verse by verse through the Bible, how does the Holy Spirit have room to move and, and do what he wants to do? Well, you can see right here, the Holy Spirit is perfectly capable of arranging time and speed and pace for us to land on what he wants us to discuss. So that's what we're going to do today. Chapter 12, verses 3 through 8 is all about the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And there's really two things that Paul is doing in this section. First of all, it's a general appeal to humility and community in the church. Something that we can all get behind, we can all grasp rather quickly, that we need to be humble as we take our place in God's church. However, it is also an affirmation of the supernatural nature of the church. That the Christian church does not function as an organization like other organizations. And we cannot just humbly take our place like you would in a business or a football team or even a family because there are supernatural spiritual matters at work here. And when we talk about things like humility and service, I mean, you maybe you've had... A, an HR session at work where they talk about humility and they talk about doing your job and, and loving it. And that, okay, that's great. But in the church, these are spiritual things. And we're going to discuss that today. And we're also going to spend some time at the end and hopefully an extended amount of time to discuss the baptism with the Holy Spirit. Calvary Chapel absolutely affirms the baptism of the Holy Spirit as laid out in the book of Acts. We have already read the story this morning of how the Holy Spirit came upon the church. And Peter said at the end of that chapter in Acts, 20, Acts 2, 38 and 39, Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For this promise is for you, that generation, your children, the next generation, for all who are far off, every generation, Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Peter says that conversion, coming to Christ, involves not only believing in God and being baptized with water, but in being baptized with the power of the Holy Spirit. Our ecclesiology, which means the doctrine of the church, is dependent upon our pneumatology, which is the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Our doctrine of the church is dependent upon our doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Ecclesiology depends on pneumatology, and that's the connection that we're looking at today. And I think it's an exciting one. So we're going to begin by examining those things that are, that are very important, but also very common and basic as far as morality goes. But we're going to see that this can only be done and is only possible by the Holy Spirit and His power. So let us read verses 3 through 5 of Romans chapter 12. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, 
and individually members one of another. Last week, we began a brand new section in the book of Romans where Paul pivots from talking about doctrine to talking about practical Christian living. And the verse two verses served as a general call to reorient your life and your thought based around the gospel. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And that's why he has this word for. It's a continuing word. He's basing what he's going to say here off of what he said before, which is that we are to be transformed in Christ Jesus based on the gospel. And his first moral mandate In the book of Romans, there have been others, of course, but in this section, is that we walk in humility. Humility. Everyone, he says, is to think with sober judgment about oneself. What is sober judgment? Well, what's the opposite of sober? Drunk. What's drunk judgment like? Is that good judgment? I can make that light. I can beat that guy up. That's drunk judgment. I'm pretty attractive after all. It's drunk judgment. It's not good. Sober judgment is when you step back and you say, nah, no way. You're thinking soberly. You're thinking rightly. You're able to evaluate the situation clearly. When I was in eighth grade and we started our uh, health class talking about alcohol and stuff, we put on the, the drunk glasses. Have you ever used those before? Where it's supposed to be what it's like when you're drunk. And they gave me a ball and said, okay, throw me the ball. And I threw it and I beamed this girl right in the front row. In the face with the ball, and he was supposed to be throwing it that way. So, drunk judgment. But we're talking about sober judgment. That's how you're supposed to think about yourself. To think about yourself soberly, which would mean rightly. Not highly than he ought to think, but with sober judgment. This is honest, either up or down, right? Some people, when they get intoxicated, are very aggressive and are very confident. And everybody laughs at them because they know that they're not that. Well, Paul is telling the same thing. Sometimes you in the church think way more highly of yourself than you ought to think. You think you're way more important than you really are. And you look down on other people. And Paul calls you, be sober and come down to earth and think about yourself about the way you really are. Other people, when they become intoxicated, get depressed and sad and down on themselves. I'm the worst person. No one will ever love me. No one will ever care about me. Well, that's not good either. Some of you are way too down on yourself in the church. You think you can never contribute. You're too broken. You're too damaged. And Paul is telling you, think soberly. Do you honestly think that you're worthless in God's church? I mean, in the clear light of day with somebody asking you that question? Well, we'll no. Okay, that's sober judgment. We all have something to contribute. So whether you got to go up or down, sober judgment. That's real humility. Humility is not just walking around pretending that you hate yourself so that other people will compliment you. That's not humility. He says to do this according to the measure of faith. There are two basic interpretations here, one of which is is not really too popular, and I think it's because it's wrong. Um, According to the measure of faith either means, number one, the standard of faith, meaning the gospel itself. So think of yourself in relation to the gospel. That's certainly true. That's what he said in in verse 1. But the word there for measure means amount, the amount of faith. And there are some people that don't like the idea of somebody having more or less faith than somebody else, but I think it's totally biblical. This is how most people interpret it. Matthew 9, 29, when Jesus was performing a miracle for somebody, he said, according to your faith, may it be unto you. And he rebuked the disciples often for the littleness of their faith. So according to the kind of faith you have, as well as the amount of faith that has been given to you, 
You are to recognize your role in the church. And the more faith you have, as your faith grows, you you will be able to do this more and better. And this does take faith to take your role in the church. You've got to do it because of your belief in Christ, because we are radical individualists, are we not? We tend to think of ourselves as the protagonist of this life. Everybody else is kind of supporting cast there to help us out. It's very American, and there's nothing wrong with it in that kind of social context. But make no mistake, when you come to God's church, this is a community endeavor. This is us working to serve one, and that is Jesus Christ. He is the individual who is on top, not us. So sometimes in your life and in your work and in your pursuits and your accomplishments, you work very hard to be number one, and good for you. You should do that. Let's go for it. But when it comes to God's church, don't think that that translates to coming in here. And now I can do the same thing in God's church. I'm going to work and be the best Christian and the top dog and the top of this little pyramid. No, no, no. This only comes from the Lord. He gives this to us. It takes some faith. It takes some unlearning of culture to take a humble place in God's church. But Paul here then moves into one of his favorite metaphors to explain this. And this is that of the body of Christ. In Romans chapter 12 and Ephesians chapter 4 and 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul describes the church as a body. You've heard this, the body of Christ. And that's why in our culture, we can talk about any gathering of people as the body, the body politic we use. All of that comes from Paul's language here. But go back to the very basic level. He says, your body has fingers and hands and wrists and forearms and elbows and legs and torso and all that. You need every part of the body. So in that way, we all don't do the same work, the same ministry, but we all work together to serve the head, who is Christ. So he's actually, this is a literal body that he's using uh, as an illustration here, not just the congregation, that we function like a body. And everybody's got to be humble enough to take their place in the body and do it to the best of their ability so that it functions properly. This is the same thing as any other kind of endeavor. If you're in a family and everybody's competing with one another, the family's not going to function like it should. You ever been in a workplace where nobody really wants to do their job? Maybe every workplace you've ever been in where nobody, you know, people will complain and you're like, this is your job. You're getting money for this. I can't believe boss asked me to do that. Well, you did, you know, fill out an application and say, can I do this for money, please? And it's not just free money. You have to do the work. And if everybody's not doing the work, then it it just stalls out and it's difficult and it's hard. Same thing in a team. You ever been on on a team where somebody's just hogging the ball and not letting everybody else touch it? Maybe basketball is the best illustration of that and it's just not working. You gotta pass the ball. It's like, well, you're not gonna make the shot. Well, you're not making them either, man. All they know is now they just gotta guard you. And so what's gonna happen? Every person's gotta play their role. What if a lineman got fed up and said, nope, I wanna throw the ball this time? That's not your job. Your job is, oh, so you're saying I couldn't throw the ball if I want? No, I'm saying your job is to block so that he can throw the ball. Well, he gets all the attention. Yeah, so we're winning. (laughs) We're trying to win. We're trying to get this trophy together. That's how the body of Christ works. Everybody has to play their part so that we can win the trophy, win the crown, the prize, as Paul said. So therefore, knowing that Jesus is the head, we've got to take up our part in his body with as much faith as has been granted to us, and that often requires a lot of humility. You want to be everything, and God says, no, all I need you to be is one of those bones in your wrist. But I want to be the mouth so everybody can hear what I have to say. I don't have that for you. 
But that means he'll get more attention. That means she'll get more attention. God goes, what difference does it make? We're all working towards the same goal, are we not? To do his work. We have no regard for honor or status in Christ's church, which is why I've said it over and over and over again. I don't care who walks through that door. They do not get special attention. I don't care if the president walks through that door. I don't care if somebody famous walks through that door. You do not go up and treat them differently than you treat everybody else. Now, this might mean you need to start treating everybody else better rather than treating them worse. But we don't give special treatment to anybody in God's church because we're all part of the same body. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says, For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. God assigned people in his church without regard to their culture, to their race, to their economic status. God says, I've done this according to my wisdom. And in humility, you've got to recognize how that applies to you, and you take your place. So you can see how this is a very spiritual matter. This is something the Holy Spirit has done to make us part of that mystical body of Christ. But I'll say not only is this made possible by the Holy Spirit, it is only possible by the Holy Spirit. It's only possible. And I'm going to demonstrate that as we go through. This is spiritual work. The church is not just a community organization. This is a spiritual matter. And when Paul talks about the body of Christ, he always describes spiritual gifts next, which is exactly what he does. So let's look at this in verse 6, and then we'll read to verse 8. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Paul now, as he always does when he talks about the body, describes the gifts. This is the Greek word charismata. You can hear the word charisma in there, can't you? It comes from the word for charis, which means grace, but it means gift. This is why if you ever heard of a charismatic church, we are one of those. It is a church that believes in the gifts of the Holy Spirit and their continuation today. This is how the New Testament describes the power of the Spirit at work in each individual Christian. And actually, two Wednesdays ago on, on Ascension Day, we talked about Ephesians chapter 4 where it says that Christ ascended on high and gave gifts to men. So you wonder maybe why in the Old Testament doesn't ever talk about spiritual gifts. It seems that the early church latched on to Psalm 68, 18 as their description of what had been done when the Holy Spirit fills each individual person. It says he gave gifts to men. So when the Spirit works in each person to fulfill their role in the body, they said, that's your gift from God. The manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. That's what 1 Corinthians 12, 7 says. That's the definition of a spiritual gift. To each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. The manifestation of the Spirit. That's a pretty radical thing, isn't it? The Holy Spirit manifesting himself, showing himself, acting through you and how you serve in God's church. Without this consideration, all the church is is a functioning system. And it is that. But it's so much more than that. And it's only possible by what the Holy Spirit has done. 
And there is so much misunderstanding on spiritual gifts, which is ironic because Paul said in 1 Corinthians, I do not want you to be ignorant concerning spiritual gifts. But isn't it true that anywhere Paul says, I do not want you to be ignorant, there's an awful lot of ignorance. Anywhere he says, do not be deceived, there's an awful lot of deception. Because the Lord knows, he warns us. I remember I went to Liberty University, which is a Baptist college, Great school. I have nothing but good things to say about them. But they are what's called cessationist, meaning they don't believe in the continuation of the miraculous spiritual gifts. And I forget who it was, but somebody came into my class and gave a teaching on spiritual gifts. And it was a really great Bible study. And he was talking about how somebody who has this spiritual gift is going to approach a problem this way. And someone who has this gift is going to approach it that way. And somebody with the gift of evangelism is going to be concerned that the church is doing evangelism. And somebody who has the gift of helps is going to be concerned that the church is helping people. And it was great. But the the shortcoming of what that teaching was, and maybe you've heard it before, was that he was describing the spiritual gifts as no functionally different than personality types. That a prophet is just somebody who's loud and bold and in your face. That's not what the Bible says. That somebody with the gift of mercy is going to be kind and compassionate. Well, maybe, but that's not the same thing. And I actually was very grateful that he even took the time to talk about spiritual gifts. And he was very kind and was not disparaging at all to those of us who hold a, a different opinion. But we need to know this. Spiritual gifts are not just personality types. They are supernatural powers. You go, oh, that's an interesting way to think about it. Well, it's the right way to think about it. It's the manifestation of the Spirit, the same Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead, manifesting Himself in you. So knowing that, Paul begins this list of gifts, and he gives seven of them, and the way that they ought to be used. He says, let us use them. But I should mention, you may have that in italics in your Bible where it says, let us use them. That is because there is no operative verb In that verse, Paul just says this, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving. So the translators, for that reason, add the phrase, and it's universal across most Bible translations, let us use them. But it's important for you to know that Paul wrote that verse without that phrase. And it's very obvious what he's trying to get at. But that just, just an interesting note to know about the translation of your Bible. This is what's called a dynamic translation or a thought-for-thought thought translation. He's not giving the exact words, but he's absolutely communicating the sense. So this is a great example of dynamic translation being used in a good way. Now, he names seven different gifts here. The other lists of spiritual gifts are found in 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians chapter 4, and there's a short one in 1 Peter chapter 4. And these gifts do not overlap exactly, which I think is an indication that these are representative lists. These are the kinds of spiritual gifts you can see, but there can be more or there can be a blending of the two. Sometimes you go, was that exhortation or encouragement? It's like, well, it was from the Lord, so it really isn't important to distinguish them, but it is important to have them written down and that we can discuss them. And I'm I'm not looking too much to come up with additional gifts to add. So we're just going to look at this one here. This is all in the context of everybody being humble, taking their place in the church. And Paul gives an example here of the kinds of places in the church that you can take. And the first one immediately knocks us for a loop. If prophecy in proportion to our faith. And do not immediately think, well, prophecy means preaching. No, 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 no. There is a word for preaching in the Bible. He does not use it here. 
And in fact, the third one he's going to say is teaching, which is the most common use of the word that we would call preaching. This is actual prophecy as you understand prophecy. Speaking forth the word of the Lord for the moment. You've got two extremes here on prophecy. Not extremes, it's just, I'd say, imbalanced opinions. One of them says prophecy is only and ever predicting the future. That's the colloquial English way of using the word prophecy, right? I prophesy that the dolphins are going to win it all this year, right? You're predicting the future. That's not exactly how, don't laugh at me, that's not exactly, that's not exactly how the Bible uses that term. There's a lot of that in there, but that's not the only thing. And there are some on the other side say, prophecy is just speaking the word of the Lord, and as long as you know what God would say, then you're prophesying. Well, that's not exactly true either. There is definitely a supernatural element to it, and quite often there is a predictive element to prophecy. The Bible tells us very specifically, do not despise prophecies. Do not despise them. Do not forbid them. But in fact, 1 Corinthians 14 says, if you can only have one spiritual gift, this is the one you should pray for. So for all of our fear of prophecy, it's the one the Bible tells us to go for. It's the direct word of the Lord for the moment. What does God have to say right now in this situation to this person? I think the best example of this is you look at the Old Testament. The prophets in the king's court were meant to give the word of the Lord for that moment, for that decision, for that battle, for this alliance the king is trying to make, and also to step in whether or not the king wanted to hear. That's what prophets function like in the church. Agabus functioned this way in the book of Acts. And Paul says, if this is your gift and you are going to do this, you have to do it with faith. Prophecy in proportion to our faith. Y'all, I have the gift of prophecy. And there are some times the Lord has told me things that I just straight up did not want to tell anybody. And did not want to say because it was intimidating. And I've learned that I need to grow in my faith. Because sometimes you say things to people in prophetic word and it doesn't happen for a long time. And you start to feel silly. But you need to realize that there is faith involved here. Which is why quite often people who function as prophets in the church sometimes are a little out there. Because if you, you have to really truly not care what somebody thinks about you if you're going to function in this way. And so somebody who already doesn't care what people think, like John the Baptist, for example, they're ready to roll on this gift, which is why we need to make sure we don't despise it because of maybe what we think about the messenger. Number two is service, related to the word for deacon here. This is any kind of work to be done in the church to bring about the work. This is to be done in their serving, right? So I maybe I'm pushing the point here a little bit, but if you're doing work in the church, remember that you are serving people. Maybe that's your function. Your job is just to show up and, and to set up chairs or to run sound or to clean the floors and wipe the windows and restock paper towels in the bathroom or to babysit the kids you know, so that we can have an event of some kind, to set up a big event for the 5K. That's service. But you've got to remember that it is service. <laughs> you are serving people. This is not so that you can have some kind of status or that you can have some kind of authority over other people. That is so the wrong attitude to have. For example, we talk about the service industry a lot. When you go to buy food from somebody or you go to the Department of Motor Vehicles in order to get your registration updated, and it's very clear when somebody has no intention of serving you. They'll do what needs to be done, but it's, it's not done to serve you. 
or God for that matter. And in the church, it's supposed to be done in serving. That we, I'll just throw this out there. Here's my one point of application. When y'all are on your ministry teams, do not allow each other to complain about the work or about the people. Sometimes we're like, every time we set up these chairs and people come in, they sit in them and they move them and then I got to rearrange the rows. I wish they would just, well, what would you rather have? Nobody showing up? Then all the chairs would stay in the same place, right? This is the work, <laughs> right? Sometimes even pastors will be like, all these people coming in for counseling, I don't have time to, to study. Like, well, that's the job, my friend, is to love the people, to serve them. Number three is, in, is teaching, this is somebody who expounds doctrine, like I'm doing now, expounding it and teaching it to you, and also holds the line against false doctrine. The primary job of a teacher is to teach true doctrine and to expose false doctrine when it arises. And he says you ought to do this as a teacher ought to in faith. When you stand up to preach the word, you need to step up and do it with authority. Peter will say, if you are one who speaks in God's church, you ought to do so as having the oracles of God. Stand up with authority as if you've got something to say. This is something that early preachers uh, who are first learning how to do it really need to work on, is tell them what it means. Don't say, maybe we should, or I just think, or I don't know, this is, could say, I mean, to me it means, ah, don't say that. Don't tell me what it means to you. Tell me what it means. Teach us, right? Speak with authority. This includes the children's ministry, by the way. Teach the kids. Teach them what's right. Instruct them. At least speaking for my kids, you know, knock them around a little bit if they're not paying attention. <laughs> Number four is, speaking of which, exhortation. <laughs> what is exhortation? It means to stir people up to do the right thing. It's different from encouragement, and that encouragement is, is comfort, right? It's, it's encouraging people, you can, you can do this. Encouragement says, you can do this. Exhortation says, you better do this. And we need that. We need people that are going to exhort the church. And I will say, I am much more of an exhorter than an encourager. There are so many great encouraging pastors in Calvary Chapel. Tom Hallman from Calvary Chapel Williamsburg is one. Just You hear him talk and you just, you just feel happy. He's just so kind and sweet. And Pastor Chuck was that way. And there are others that I would. I, I found out that I'm not. I'm much more of an exhorter. I'm much more of a, come on, let's do it then a, hey, don't worry, you can do it. But we have both of those in this church, and we need them both. An exhorter ought to do that, to do it to the fullest. Number five, he talks about contribution. That means there is a spiritual gift in the church of giving to the work to support it financially. Barnabas had this gift. Remember in the book of Acts, he sold his, his land and his property, and he donated the proceeds to the church to help feed the poor and take care of the widows? That's the gift of contribution. Or giving. And Paul says this is to be done in a spirit of generosity. There are some that give an awful lot to the church, but there's all kinds of strings attached. They want to make sure they have their name on the building when it's done. They want to have a look at the books and make sure they know how it's being spent because it is my money after all. Holding their gifts over pastors' heads. You know that happens all over the world. There are pastors today that know what they're supposed to do in the church, but they know that if they do it, if they teach this, if they change that, if they even paint the walls, so-and-so family is going to leave and take all their money with them. That's not contribution in generosity, is it? That's not, that's not how God gives us gifts. That's not how we're to give gifts either. Instead, we're supposed to just give and say, Lord, it's in your hands. Way more people trust their pastor to take care of their soul than they do their money. Isn't that backwards? 
Oh, I'll hear you teach, but I'm not going to give to this ministry because I don't know how responsible you are. Okay. Then you don't have the gift of contribution is what I'm going to say. But the church needs that. We need that. We're finishing up a building project. We have been dependent upon all of you contributing to the work. And I will say that I make it a point not to know who gives what. I'm not weird about it if you want to come and share something with me. But for the most part, I just don't want to know. Because I don't want to treat anybody different because I know what they tithe. Right? We're going back to greeting people coming through the door the same way. So if you ever feel like, well, why isn't he nicer to me? Doesn't he know what I give to this church? I don't. (laughs) Number six is leadership. And he says leadership is to be done with zeal. Zeal is passion. Zeal is fire. I'm a leader. And I will tell you, one of the difficult parts of being a leader is you've got to be excited when nobody else is. You've got to be zealous and passionate and charge forward when you don't want to because they're going to follow you. And that's why the Lord tells us to lead with zeal, to have the fire when no one else has it. To be like David, who when their whole family was kidnapped and everybody was getting ready to stone him to death, David was able to strengthen himself in the Lord. And leaders have got to be able to do that in God's church. Number seven is mercy. People who just have the gift of showing love and compassion. You ever known somebody like that in God's church? It's just the love of Jesus pouring off of them. You you just kind of want to stand there so that they'll say hello to you. Because you know you're going to walk away feeling better about yourself. You're going to feel loved. You're going to feel like mercy has been shown to you. And it says this is to be done with cheerfulness. Don't show mercy to people in God's church with groaning. Oh, this guy again. She's going to want to talk again for like three hours. Well, I'm not saying you've got to talk to her for three hours, but you better be cheerful about the time you are going to talk. Mercy. You don't want somebody to do something nice for you and then roll their eyes. That's, that's miserable. So if your job is to show mercy and compassion and love in this church, do it with cheerfulness. And the rest of y'all, don't put out their fire either. I don't know why you keep on acting so cheerful and chipper. Don't you know what's going on in the world? Yes. So let's not make it worse with our sour attitudes. Let's be full of cheerfulness and mercy. So prophecy, service, teaching, exhortation, contribution, leadership, and mercy. Now, whether your gift was listed there or not, the point Paul is making is that you've got to evaluate yourself in humility and then get to work. He told Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, 5, fulfill your ministry. Live it out. Fill it up. Peter said in 1 Peter 4.10, as each has received a gift, so you are not the only person in God's church that doesn't have a spiritual gift. It says, ekastas, each one has received a gift. So use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Remember the parable of the talents where he gave five to one and three to another and then one, and the guy that buried it in the ground was the guy that got in trouble at the end? Don't sit on your gift. Get up and get to work. Well, when I was a young man, I, I was all involved in the church, but now I'm just ready to sit back and, and just relax. Why? We need you. Well, this is kind of a young person's church. No, it's not. Would you please stop saying that? This is an everybody church. We need everybody in this church, especially those of you that have done this for a long time. Well, I'm, just, I'm ready to, to rest and relax. Do that when you get to heaven, man. You know, if you want to retire, retire, but you don't retire from service in God's church. It might look different. It might end up a different way. It might not be quite as much, but you are needed in the body of Christ. 
especially those of you who are young as well. If you're like, well, my time will come. This is your time. This is our time to step up and do what God has called you to do. We're not the next generation. You're alive now. You're this generation. God doesn't separate people up that way, so we shouldn't. If you are young in the church, good, we need your fire. If you are old in the church, good, we need your wisdom. And together we'll accomplish the work that God has given us to do. Christianity is not a spectator sport. I'm going to watch the team do what they're going to do. I was at a Stallions game yesterday. A lot of fun, about 300 degrees there. But (laughs) it was great. We were spectators, sitting back and watching the team play. That's not how it works in the church. I'm going to watch Pastor Tyler and the elders and the servants that do their thing. No, come join the team. Well, it seems like it's the same people always doing the work around there. Yeah, because it's the same people that show up early and get to work. Nothing's stopping you from doing that. This is your job too. This is your work. The more people we have taking ownership and stepping up to build this thing together, the greater it'll become because we'll have more people with new and better gifts working on it. Just caring about the state of things is not enough. Let me say that again. Just caring about the state of things is not enough. Sitting around, caring about the direction of the country, caring about the falling away of the church, caring about the ministry, that's not enough. It's important, but it's not enough. You've got to get up and get to work. You've got to get up and get to work. Not scripture. Remember Teddy Roosevelt? It is not the critic who counts. Oh, we're all good critics. We're all good at pointing out how the strong man stumbles or how one who does good deeds could have done them better. But don't do that. Get in there and get to work. Well, I don't know if that's my calling. Then maybe it's best just to not criticize somebody else who's at work. But you need to get to work. Find your gift and do it with all your heart. Now, here's the thing. Let's, let's take a turn here. So far, we've been talking about everybody taking your place in God's church, doing it well so that we all function together in humility, in love, so that we can get the job done. All right? Wonderful. But that list included prophecy. Right off the bat, we're in, we're in a different state here than we're used to. There's no department of prophecy at your job, I would expect. There's no department of supernatural work at the plant, as they say. Other lists in the Bible of spiritual gifts include healing, miracles, speaking in tongues, the discernment of spirits. These things are spiritual. And we know this. The Christian church is a spiritual entity united by the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ, empowered to do spiritual and supernatural work. That's how Paul did it. And that's how we are to do it. In fact, look at what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2, verses 4 and 5. Do you want to say, how can we duplicate Paul's ministry? How how can we have an effect like that? How can we impact the world the way Paul did? Let's study the way he did this and that. No, no. He said in 1 Corinthians 2, My speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom. That is, I didn't show up with amazing oratory and great logical arguments to convince people into the faith but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. 
Paul says, why is my ministry so effective? Because I let the Holy Spirit do his thing in power. I watch him change lives. He does works through me. He does miracles. He does signs. He teaches and instructs and brings people along by his power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Do you know what is a very ironic accusation that is often leveled against ministries that believe in the, in the spiritual work of the church? against those that believe in the gifts and things like that. They say, well, people are just going to be focusing on you and have a cult of personality, and it's all about following this one guy. Did you not know that Paul says the opposite of that is the danger we should be worried about? You are much more likely to follow after one man when he's doing it all in his strength and power. Look what he built. Look what he did. But when there's miraculous work going on, you say, well, I know it wasn't him. I'm not trusting in him. I'm trusting in the work that God has done in me. And that's the mandate that we have, is to do that kind of work. When we step up and start doing our job in the church, you are engaged in spiritual work, supernatural work. So we've got to know what we're talking about here. Because you say, all right, I'm immediately now out of my depth when it comes to my job in the church. You're right. You're right. So we better take some time to understand this. If we are to do this, How? Well, the answer is what took place on the day of Pentecost all those years ago. The church was baptized with the Holy Spirit. And that is what is necessary in order to do the work and fulfill the ministry that God has given you. I'm going to explain this here. What do I mean by the baptism with the Holy Spirit? If you read all four Gospels, four times you have an announcement from John the Baptist that he's not the Messiah, but one is coming. And what's going to be the big difference between the two of them? I baptize you with water. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. The four Gospels do not include all the same information, as we know. So when they all talk about something, you know it's important. Crucifixion, resurrection, baptism with the Holy Spirit. This is something that we are anticipating as we go through the Gospels, especially Luke and John. And then in Acts chapter 1, after the resurrection, what was Jesus talking to his disciples about before he ascended to heaven? Well, it tells us. While staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem. He had given them a commission, but he said, don't leave. But instead, he said, to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. And he said, what is the promise of the Father? He explains, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Jesus said, I'm sending you out to be the body of Christ, but don't start yet. You need something first. You need the power of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to baptize you with the Spirit like John prophesied. This is different from conversion and saving faith. In fact, the disciples had already demonstrated saving faith at this point. What did Thomas say when he saw the hands and feet of Jesus? My Lord and my God. They knew what was up. They believed already. They were saved. This is also different from water baptism because Jesus separated the two. John separated the two. They contrasted from one another. Baptism with water is different from the baptism of the Spirit. This is a new thing that was prophesied in Joel chapter 2. We read that this morning. In the last days, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. That means 
No longer just Moses, Elijah, David, Isaiah, everybody. Without regards to sex, male and female. Without regard to age, old men and young men. Without regard to class, even on the male and female servants, I'll pour out my spirit. And the kinds of things he describes are visions and prophecies and dreams. And you all know the story. They were all there praying, and the rushing wind came. And the word for wind in Greek is pneuma, which is the same word for spirit. So there's a picture there. Remember Jesus said the wind blows where it wishes? That's just like the spirit. Well, a mighty rushing wind came upon them. Tongues of fire appeared upon them, and they were all baptized with the Holy Spirit. And this is the big difference. We can do God's work. But if we do it in our own power, it won't be effective. Consider Peter. Peter, before the Holy Spirit had come, was a loudmouth. He was kind of a coward. He liked to talk his way out of certain situations. And the last time he had been asked to testify, do you belong to Christ, he had denied Jesus three times. But then the Holy Spirit comes upon Peter in Acts chapter 2. And he steps up before all the same people that crucified Jesus. And he testifies that Jesus is the Son of God, risen from the dead. And thousands of people were saved. Acts 2.41. That's the difference between the power of the Spirit and the power of the flesh. Power of the flesh is doing the same work, but is not seeing the same fruit. Power of the Spirit is the same work, but abundant fruit. Now, part of Peter's invitation in Acts 2.38, we read this at the beginning of the study, was to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Peter's altar call began with repentance and baptism, but then moved on to receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit. This is the pattern throughout the book of Acts, that spirit baptism was distinct from water baptism. Consider this passage here in Acts 8. 14 through 17. The point I'm trying to make here is this was not something that only happened once in God's church on the day of Pentecost. It happened multiple times. Acts 8, 14 through 17. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Do you see that? Major revival in Samaria. People getting saved by the dozens and hundreds. And they finally sent Peter and John because the work was not complete. They needed to be filled with the Spirit. Which tells us that being baptized with water, again, is distinct from being baptized with the Spirit. They were baptized first in water and baptized later in the Spirit. There is another instance where people were baptized with the Spirit first and then baptized with water. So this is why I don't like to call it a subsequent blessing because it's not always subsequent. I just call it distinct. Later on in Acts chapter 19, verse 2, Paul is shooting the breeze with some guys in Ephesus, disciples, he says. And he asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Apparently, that's the kind of question that Paul asked people he didn't know. Okay, you believed, but did you receive the Holy Spirit? And these guys hadn't. And it turned out they had some problems with their doctrine too. But the point that you see there is that this was something that the apostles checked up on. You've been saved, but have you received the baptism of the Holy Spirit? 
Now, Romans 8 9 tells us that you cannot be saved apart from the indwelling seal of the Spirit, that salvation itself is the work of the Holy Ghost. But there is a distinct work that is done to empower and gift you for your life and your ministry. And we call that the baptism with the Holy Spirit. There are some who want to lump all of these things together as one, that when you're saved, you get all the Holy Spirit you're ever going to get. All I can say to that is that is not how the book of Acts portrays it. And then they'll say things like, well, the book of Acts was a special time, and now it's different. All right, are you really sure you want to say that the book of Acts is not our example to follow? I, I absolutely disagree with that. And it's clear that while there is this baptism also that takes place once, there's also a repeated work that the Bible calls being filled with the Holy Spirit. So there's a distinct work from salvation called being baptized with the Holy Spirit. And yet, while that only happens one time, the Bible says that you can be refilled with the Holy Spirit. Think of it as the Lord lighting a fire in your heart, and every so often he pours gasoline on it. Acts 4.31 says, When they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. So here you see people filled with the Holy Spirit and another miraculous rushing on of power. These are the same people from Acts chapter 2. So can this experience be repeated? Yes. How many times in the book of Acts does it say, And Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit... And then Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit and, and then Philip was filled with the Holy Spirit and. So this is not just the second blessing. There's also a third and a fourth and a fifth. It's an ongoing relationship with the person of the Holy Spirit. Well, okay, but the epistles don't talk about this. Yes, they do. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. Paul says, be Filled with the Holy Spirit. This is a present imperative, which is called a continual imperative. You can translate it, keep on being filled. Go on being filled. Make sure that you're being filled. 1 Thessalonians 5.19 says not to quench the Spirit. I would imagine that if one has quenched the Spirit and repents and comes back, what they need is to be filled with the Spirit again. This is how we do the work of the church through the baptism of the Spirit in power. There may be different terminology that folks want to use, but I will say that this is what the Bible holds up as the New Testament example of what to expect. In the Gospels, they're saying, it's coming, it's coming, get ready. Jesus said, don't go anywhere, it's coming, you need my power. And then it came. And then everybody who they prayed for to receive the Lord in the book of Acts, they prayed to receive the Holy Spirit. Paul double-checked with people. They themselves asked for a fresh filling of the Holy Spirit. It is an endowment with power from God. If you want to fulfill your ministry, you need the power of the one who's going to labor alongside you. Now, what exactly is this? The Bible describes it as the Spirit rushing upon you. It's what happened to Samson. The Spirit of God rushed upon him, and he did something incredible. Or the prophets, the Holy Spirit came upon them and they prophesied. John in the book of Revelation says, all of a sudden I was in the Spirit and I saw. It's when the Holy Spirit fills you up with his power and his presence and you are in that moment so aware that God is in you and upon you and he empowers you to do things you could not otherwise do. And it can, uh, the moment can be different 
for different people. For some, this is a time of high emotion. That's usually what we see in the book of Acts. That they were shouting, they were celebrating. There can be joy, there can be tears, there can be an overwhelming just sense of, I don't know what to do with myself, I'm so happy, I'm so joyful, God really loves me. Now for others, it's more quiet, but it's no less dynamic for that. There's all of a sudden, the assurance of salvation falls upon them. I prayed for a woman in, in Lynchburg, Virginia, not long ago, to be filled with the Holy Spirit for the first time. And she said, wrote me a letter, actually. She said, I went home that night, and I, and I began to pray. She says, and I, for the first time in my life, realized that God loved me, and I've never felt so assured of my salvation, and never so close to God, and now everything has totally changed in my life, and my walk with the Lord is so different. But in the moment, there was nothing ecstatic, as we might say, biblical word, ecstatic. I've also seen that. For others, they get the first taste of one of their spiritual gifts. Most often, the gift of tongues. Now, 1 Corinthians 12.30 says not everybody speaks in tongues. But most folks in the book of Acts who were filled with the Spirit did. And most people today that are baptized with the Spirit will speak in tongues. All of us? No. A lot of us? Yes. Probably more than are doing it right now? Yes. Calvary Chapel, we are pro-gift of tongues here. We're not anti, we're not open but cautious, we are in favor. I'm not going to manipulate or push anybody, but very often when the Spirit comes upon you, He gives you that new language that you've never learned before with which you begin to praise Him. And then you carry that with you and it becomes something you use in your quiet time and so on. Sometimes people will be given prophecies in those moments and they see visions of things going on in their lives or they have a word to give to somebody. Sometimes they stand up and they, they say something to the congregation and there's fire behind it that's never been there before. Other times, you're just so overwhelmed that you can't even speak. That's being baptized with the power of the Holy Spirit. And after that, everything's different. Everything's different. All we are told to do in Scripture in order to receive this gift is to ask. Often with somebody else praying for you and guiding you. Luke eleven thirteen, Jesus said, If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? Do you want the power of the Holy Spirit? He says, come and ask me. And the advantage of having a brother or sister pray with you is that they're there to comfort you, but they're also there to challenge you. They're also there to challenge you to receive what God is doing, exactly what's needed for the moment. Because we can quench the Spirit through sin. Very often you say, I want to be filled with the Holy Spirit. The first thing He does is He brings up some unconfessed sin in your life that needs to be dealt with. Unforgiveness. There's somebody in your life you just refuse to forgive, and the Lord goes, this is going to block what I want to do. Through fear, there's an unwillingness. God, I'll do anything, but don't let me, please don't let me speak in tongues. Or Lord, please don't let me have visions. That just freaks me out a little bit. It's, it's not up to you to decide. Lord, please don't make me an elbow. Lord, please don't make me an eye. God goes, it's my body. I'm going to distribute these gifts severally as I will. Stubbornness sometimes. Now, I'll pray, but God's not going to do anything with me that I don't want him to do. Then he's probably not going to do anything. Because in those moments, man, everything comes up. Say, Holy, Lord, Holy Spirit, fill me up. Baptize me with your power. And everything comes up. The Lord goes, let's deal with this now. And the good news is it can be done in a moment. 
And that's why you have somebody there to pray with you, who especially has some spiritual discernment to help guide you through. And I've had moments where I've prayed for people, and sometimes the Lord says, don't say a thing, I'm working on them. And I just sit there and wait, and then they begin to weep, and then they're filled with the Spirit. Other times, the Lord has told me, rebuke them and tell them they need to stop being so stubborn. But being baptized or filled with the Spirit means that we receive the power and the anointing that we need to fulfill the work that has been given to us. On Pentecost, today of all days, you must come and receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Don't be afraid, because God's not going to trick you. God's not going to say, I got something good for you. Just kidding, aren't you embarrassed? He won't manipulate you. If you came to Jesus and asked him for something, is he going to hold you up to public shame and make you feel bad about yourself and, and give you some kind of crummy gift that you hate? No, Jesus would never do that. Well, that's who we're talking to. It's the Spirit of Christ. The Spirit of Jesus. His Heavenly Father. Jesus himself. He gives good gifts only. It's the spirit of Jesus. And we reject any and all unbiblical excess here. There are some folks that want you to work something up. Say, come on, man, come on, just go, let's go, let's go. Jump up and down until you get all excited and call it the gift of the spirit. We reject that. But I will say that if you are unwilling to risk the possibility of excess, if you refuse to be a fool for Christ, you're going to miss out. The baptism of the spirit empowers the church to fulfill its work in spectacular fashion. I mean, consider the days in which we're living now. The church is shriveling up in the United States anyway. Evil is on the march. Our country faces these dark ideologies, these anti-God messages that are reaching into our homes and our schools and our churches. And the backlash is going to be even more ugly when that finally comes. We finally reject all this stuff. That's going to be something else to deal with. Well, what is to be done? The only answer we have is the only answer Jesus gave us, which is to receive the promise of the Father. A spirit-filled church will fulfill its divine Ephesians 2:10 to-do list. Because the Spirit is leading us every step of the way. And the gates of hell will not prevail. John 14, 12, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I'm going to the Father. Why does going to the Father enable us to do greater works than Jesus? Because when he goes to the Father, in context, in that passage, he's going to send the Holy Spirit. The church is capable of greater things than Jesus of Nazareth performed while he was on the earth. That's the word of God. That's Bible. That's not me. Perhaps I should inquire further, right? If that's possible, and it's by the Holy Spirit, then maybe I ought to get over myself and come and ask. I can see it, y'all. The bones are rattling in this country. Revival's coming. I mean that. It's coming. And I intend to catch the next wave of the Holy Spirit. I'm setting my sails and waiting for the wind to blow. Yeah, we can move forward when we row, but I'm waiting for the Holy Ghost just to blow on those sails and blast us forward. Amen? God's going to raise up evangelists and prophets and healers and teachers, and today is the day. I do not fear the future because Christ is with us. But if we advance, we can only advance in His name and by His power.